In Nairobi, Kenya's capital city, there is a fig tree. It's been there for nearly a century, and it might stand there for another century yet. But it also stands in the planned route of a new expressway being funded and built by a Chinese company in the city. Announcements that the tree would be moved, a process that experts thought would quite possibly kill it, caused outrage, with local protesters rallying around the huge, iconic piece of urban flora. And in the end, local officials said that the tree would be preserved as a national symbol of environmental conservation. I mentioned this tree because it seems to me an apt object lesson for the Belt and Road Initiative and the ways that specific local conditions are often more important than the big eye-catching geostrategic ones when it comes to actually understanding how the BRI works. This is one of Jonathan Hillman's main takeaways about the BRI and his new book, The Emperor's New Road. Often when you're looking at the global BRI, the most impactful developments are the ones happening at the incredible local level. This is what we're looking at in today's episode, The Belt and Road. Is it an effort to ensnare developing countries in the economic sway of China? Or is it a blundering mess of corruption and unviable infrastructure projects across the globe? And whatever the answer to that question is, what can the U.S. do to compete? So, from the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Ian Hutchinson, and this is the China Business Review Podcast. There is a popular narrative around the Belt and Road that describes the project as a strategic plan, masterminded by Beijing to help grow China's international power and prestige. Some even claim that the BRI is laying the foundations for a more flexible and forward-deployed Chinese military. And these ideas don't come from nowhere. In the beginning of the project, it did seem like things might be centrally controlled and managed, and possibly even effectively. I thought, you know, in the early days of my learning about China's Belt and Road Initiative, that it was much more coordinated, um, you know, hyper-centralized, uber-strategic, and um, you know, I had I had an experience that actually motivated me to you know write this book, which was I went to the first Belt and Road Forum in Beijing in 2017, and you know I was blown away by you know the number of um, foreign delegations that were there. I think it was over a hundred countries and international organizations were represented. It felt like almost like a mini UN, um, and you had all of these world leaders who were participating. Um, and it also felt like this, you know, international entity that was basically missing the United States and um, or in which the United States had, you know, sent a, a lower level delegate. Um, and I came, it was very tightly coordinated, you know, as events involving Xi Jinping are. And I came away pretty impressed by that. That is the aforementioned Jonathan Hillman, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the director of their Reconnecting Asia project. From a big conference hall, from a map on the table in front of you, the ideas of a globe-spanning construction project seems more plausible than when you're staring down a border guard. But then right after the forum, I had made plans to visit some projects in the region. And um, I, I was the first stop of my itinerary after the forum um, involved going to Kyrgyzstan and to, to go there through an overland um, through one of the, the uh, mountain passes. Um, and so I, you know, I hadn't, I've been to Kyrgyzstan before, but I hadn't done that um, border crossing. And, you know, in the, in the process of going from China to Kyrgyzstan, I had to go through, um, I think almost seven checkpoints. 
um, to cross a single border. And, you know, like six of them were manned by Chinese uh, border guard. Um, and somewhere in the middle, maybe checkpoint three or four, um, the border guards went on lunch break. And it wasn't like a 30 minute lunch break. It was like a three, four hour lunch break. Um, and so I was just stuck there and, you know, trapped in no man's land. Um, and it, for me, was kind of a shocking realization that, um, you know, reality on borders, um, you know, there's still so much friction there. And it's quite easy to draw these big swooping corridors across, um, you know, the supercontinent of Eurasia. And it's easy for Chinese officials to, to say Belt and Road includes six corridors, but to actually make those happen is incredibly difficult. Um, and you know, for me to, to see that friction, even before I had you know, officially left China was kind of a wake up call. And um, you know, the, the book really does try to get closer to what the reality of this effort has been on the ground um, you know, in, in Western China, um, in Pakistan, um, on China's border with Russia, um, all the way you know, through Central Asia into Eastern Europe. Um, and I've got a chapter on Eastern Africa as well. There's definitely things that are, that are happening. There's no doubt that you know these. It's not as if these projects are um, you know mythical. Um, it's it's not like a, a charade. Um, but there there's really big challenges. And um, I, I I guess I came away from doing this. You know, having studied this now for four years, with a much more um, a much greater appreciation for how difficult it is to deliver these large projects and um, really what a management challenge it is. You know, there's no, there's still no definition for what a belt and road project is. Um, and, you know, you ask anyone in, in the business world, um, you can't manage something if you can't measure it. Um, and so being able to just even say what's part of this, what's not part of it is difficult. There are so many actors involved um, Chinese state-owned enterprises, I think, are often the most influential, and um, in some cases, are really just, you know, pursuing their own interests. Um, and the Chinese government is struggling to, I think, supervise them um, effectively. And so, I, you know, the the that trajectory in retrospect, it seems obvious, right? It seems obvious that the Belt and Road would include lots of different actors. You know, it, it seems obvious that different parts of the Chinese government would also have its own preferences and priorities, that recipient countries would have their own preferences and priorities, and that large projects would be really difficult. It seems kind of obvious in retrospect, um, but I, you know, I, I have just a much more colorful appreciation for that now, having, you know, having looked, in pro looked at projects in about 16 countries. One of the arguments made by those who view the BRI as a strategic enterprise is that China is engaging in what they refer to as debt trap diplomacy. This is the idea that in a bilateral relationship, the financially stronger partner can lend so much money to a weaker partner that the latter becomes unable to cope, thereby increasing the lender country's power over the debtor country, even forcing it to give up strategic assets. Perhaps the most high-profile case of this theory in action is Hambantota Port in Sri Lanka, where a commercially dubious port was financed and constructed through Chinese companies, and when the country was unable to make the payments on the debt, the government handed over the port on a 99-year lease to China. Seems clear-cut, right? Textbook example, lending exorbitant amounts of money to a country, which it can't pay back, and it ends up coughing up a strategic asset, like a port. Not so fast, though. 
Um, you know, I think, I think first off, there's no question that China has been an irresponsible lender. Um, and you know, really the, the lack of transparency in the way that it's been doing its lending, um, I think increases the risk of corruption. It increases um, uh, financial risk on the recipient side, you know, because the, the less that you know, um, you know, the less scrutiny you have, the more likely it is that projects that aren't viable are gonna get the green light, um, that, you know, that they're being driven by non-commercial interests. Um, or commercial interest with very short-term horizons. Um, and so that, I, I think there's no question that if you look at Sri Lanka, China, China you know, the port in Hamantota gets a lot of attention, but there's other projects that to me reflect the same failing um, on both the recipient side and on China's side. You know, you've got a cricket stadium near the port in Hamantota, you've got an airport near there um, that you know, they're all, they were all financed by China, built by Chinese construction companies, um, all named after Mahinda Rajapaksa and all barely used. And so um, it's not, you know, the port gets a lot of attention, um, but it wasn't just the port. So with all this fiscally questionable construction, the next question is, can that then be translated into political influence? Um, and there's also no question that lending can um, can you know be translated into political influence. Um, I think that's you know certainly has been the case in Sri Lanka. It's been the case in with countries in the European Union, you know, who are more more developed. Um, you know, Greece and Hungary have taken positions to weaken EU statements on China, um, and I think you know their financial and economic relations with China have been a, a strong driver for that. So, you know, lending can also um, be translated into influence. And then the crux of the argument about debt trap diplomacy itself, is this intentional? Is China using lending to drive a country's debt levels up to a point where they become unsustainable and the country then has to give up a strategic asset? You know, so China gets to take a strategic asset. And if you, you know, if you look at, um, debt renegotiations between China and recipient countries, asset seizures rarely ever happen. Um, and so I think that's just one important reality to get out there. Um, and you know, the other reality, this relates to what we were talking about earlier about the management challenge here, is I think in a way this debt trap accusation, it's meant to sort of, um, it's meant to warn countries about doing business with China, but I think in a way it's almost overly generous to Chinese officials, because it's it, it's suggesting that, to me, what's actually the the consequence of um, mismanagement and chaos and you know often corruption, it it's turning their mistake and recasting it as a strategic victory, and I just don't think that that's that's actually the case. Um, so you know it's and the you know the other problem with that narrative is it does it tends to overlook the agency of recipient countries. Um, you know, it turns them into these, you know, sort of pawns uh, that we're taking advantage of. I think if you look at the Sri Lanka case, um, you know, it's impossible to imagine Hamatota port happening without the full participation of, you know, Sri, you know Sri Lanka's highest um, elected leaders at the time. Um, so, it, you know, there's, there's a lot more nuance there, I, I, I do think. So, of course, Hillman is not saying that there is no room to improve China's lending practices. Quite to the contrary. 
As countries, and developing countries in particular, deal with the economic fallout of COVID-19, debt issues are only going to become more salient. And at the moment, China has signed on to the G20 Debt Suspension Initiative, which does seem laudable. There are issues there, however, with the opacity of lending practices of Chinese institutions and the very wide array of lenders that are involved. The problem with um, China's participation, though, is twofold. One is that really the, the lack of transparency makes it really difficult for um, other lenders to have a, an accurate picture of what a country's debt situation is. And so it's hard to provide, it's hard to do, you know, an emergency relief response if, you know, it's like if you're the fire department and you show up and, um, you know, you just don't know, like, what part of the building is on fire or how much, you know, how far the fire has spread. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot more difficult to, uh, to decide what to do. And, and I think the second challenge is that not all of China's um, largest lending entities are fully participating um, in that G20 effort. And so, you know, the China Development Bank for example, is, um, you know, Chinese officials are, are making the argument that it should be treated like a commercial bank, um, which to me, it's, it's tough for me to understand why that should be the case. Um, uh, the China uh, Export-Import Bank has been, I guess, a little bit more, um, has participated a little bit more fully, um, but you can't, you can't do, um, you know, you can't do these debt relief um, efforts without China Development Bank, you know, can't do them effectively. And so the, the Chinese for a while have been, I think, saying things about how they, you know, they, they want to make um, financial um, sustainability more important along the Dalton Road. For what it's worth, part of these issues were at least nominally addressed at the second Belt and Road Forum, which was something of a recognition that a recalibration was needed. They released a framework that read as if the IMF had, had written it, you know, it, was, it said all the right things, but they just haven't really, they haven't really fully executed on this yet. Um, and, and, you know, my concern um, is that we really, we could be looking at, you know, a, a debt crisis in some of these emerging markets. Um, and it's not at this point going to be as really surprised if it happens. It's going to be a tragedy if it happens because, we see it coming. It's um, appropriate to bring some skepticism to, you know, the the rhetoric that was used at the second Belt and Road Forum and, and since then about you know making the Belt and Road green and sustainable, not only environmentally but um, fiscally, um, and you know wanting it to be open. Is I I think that you know clearly there was a recognition that the brand, as you mentioned, was not doing so well. Um, but there's a need, as there has always been, to check this rhetoric against what's real on the ground. Um, and, you know, I think, I think one of the challenges, right, is that there's, you know, the, the pandemic has really slowed things down. And so it's tough to, it's tough to imagine, you know, would we have what we would have seen in the absence of that. Um, to me, actually, one of the encouraging things is the decline in project activity, which was, which was happening pre-pandemic. So, you know, peak Belt and Road is probably 2016, 2017. And, um, you know, a, a decline in activity, which I think is motivated both, you know, fact by factors internal to China and factors, you know, in recipient countries. Um, 
but a, a smaller pipeline of projects, I think gives um, Chinese officials an opportunity to do more quality control um, and to, you know, actually try to, um, you know, really raise the bar on what's, you know, getting approved. And whether that increase of quality control ends up coming to the BRI or not, it still exists in a larger geopolitical landscape. And in that landscape, the United States is keeping an eye on the initiative and to some extent considering ways to counter it. A lot of time was spent in the sort of first phase of the U.S. reaction to this, where there was a lot of criticism about what China was doing without a lot of um, suggestions for alternatives. And that's that's just not going to get traction in countries where, you know, that have great infrastructure needs, which, which are most countries. Um, and so, you know, you can't, you can't beat something with nothing. Um, and so I, there, there have been though a few positive developments in terms of U.S. response, I think over the last you know, year and a half, two years, one of those positive developments was the um, creation of the U.S. Development Finance Corporation, which was, you know, part of um, what used to be OPIC and part of USAID has a you know higher uh, this is basically doubled the portfolio that um, the limit that uh, OPEC used to have it has the authority to take equity positions which OPEC did not have so those are that's a positive development there's still more that needs to be done there to really use those authorities effectively and to get the most out of that new um, U.S. Development Finance Corporation but I think that's a you know positive positive step you the U.S. Export Import Bank. Um, is functioning and it, you know, it wasn't uh, for a while. And so that's another positive development. And beyond those updates, there's also the somewhat new Blue Dot Network, an international structure to essentially verify the quality of infrastructure projects in emerging markets. Um, and then the Blue Dot Network, which you mentioned, um, you know, uh, a, at least for now, um, a partnership among the United States Japan and Australia. And it really is, it's, although I do agree that on one level, the lack of clarity um, about what this is um, has sort of a belt and road quality to it. On the other hand, it's actually really focused operationally on doing what the belt and road has not done. And that's offering a criteria to say, here's, here's a project that we think deserves support. Um, so, you know, it's basically, um, a certification system um, through which you know, the countries participating in it can say that projects, you know, cross up, meet a certain threshold of quality. Um, and in doing that, they can provide some of their own support if they're able to. Um, but even that, um, that sort of stamp of approval, uh, the idea is that that would maybe motivate some interest in the private sector which is, you know, where on the U.S. side, that's where more of the firepower is, right? The U.S. is not, you know, having failed to do our own domestic infrastructure package for several years now, I think the likelihood of announcing a very large foreign infrastructure package is quite slim. Um, but, you know, the, the Blue Dot Network in theory, I think, is attractive because it's at least getting the U.S. towards saying what it supports um, and, you know, there's also been, I think, some positive work through the G20, um, which has put forward these um, uh, principles for quality infrastructure. 
which include things like um, you know debt sustainability and those principles though they they're all very hard to disagree with um, but more can be done to operationalize them and now with the countdown to the biden administration entering government how might things look different a more multilateral approach to competing with china on infrastructure investment perhaps i think there's de- there's definitely um there are opportunities and you know just based on what i've what i've read in terms of statements you know that um President-elect Biden was making, you know, on the on the campaign trail. Um, you know, I think that there there will be an emphasis on coordination with U.S. partners and allies on all things China. Um, you know, that that specific group of partners and allies will depend on the issue that that they're focused on, and so that that might you know shift and be a little bit fluid. Um, but I think that there is a real opportunity there. Um, you know, we've. The, the, the U.S. government has has these MOUs that it's signed, like the Blue Dot Network, um, that, you know, relatively little concrete has been done. You know, there's now one project, actually, that's, I think, some people are saying has, you know, is a, is a Blue Dot Network approved project. Um, but that's taken a year to do. Um, and so I think that there's room to, um, you know, move forward this from a common understanding to doing more operationally. I think there's room to be more um, active and uh, more effective in multilateral institutions. So, you know, when we're talking about infrastructure, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, um, the the EBRD, those are really important institutions for, um, you know, providing quality, infrastructure opportunities for countries that might be considering, you know, an offer from China. And um, I think that there's, you know, being, being more active in those organizations would provide an opportunity. Um, and then there's, you know, in terms of the sort of going back to the partners and allies part of this, there has been, and this is something that's impacted the Blue Dot Network, there's been a divide between the United States and um and it's um, partners in Europe on environmental issues. And I think that that, um, I think that, that can be improved with a new administration um, that's gonna be you know, much more committed um, to higher environmental standards. That gap then between the United States and Europe is, you know, it, it, it's much smaller. And um, I think that opens the door to more practical forms of, of participation. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, you haven't seen European countries signing up for the Blue Dot Network. Um, so I, I, I'm encouraged by that opportunity. Um, you know, ultimately someone's gonna have to pay for this stuff, right? If we wanna, if we wanna finance more projects. Um, and that's why it's really important that we work um, you know, with others to have, to have scale and to have the resources to do this stuff. Obviously, we're going to have to wait and see exactly what comes out of the Biden administration's efforts to compete with China and how they affect the Belt and Road. There are disagreements between the U.S. and Chinese government that are not going to go away with the change in administrations, but the way that they get dealt with may be headed towards a change in form. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council, and it is also the podcast companion to our digital magazine of the same name. 
You can read more articles about the business and economic aspects of the U.S.-China relationship at ChinaBusinessReview.com. As always, if you like the show, please leave us a rating, a review. It will help other people find it. And as usual, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Thank you.